0: Chapter 17 of The Golden Bough. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Monsbro. The Golden Bough by Sir James Fraser. Chapter 17 The Burden of Royalty. 1. Royal and Priestly Taboos. At a certain stage of early society, the king or priest is often thought to be endowed with supernatural powers, or to be an incarnation of a deity, and consistently with this belief the course of nature is supposed to be more or less under his control, and he is held responsible for bad weather, failure of the crops, and similar calamities. To some extent it appears to be assumed that the king's power over nature, like that over his subjects and slaves, is exerted through definite acts of will, and therefore, if drought, famine, pestilence, or storms arise, the people attribute the misfortune to the negligence or guilt of the king, and punish him accordingly with stripes and bonds, or, if he remains obdurate, with deposition and death. Sometimes, however, the course of nature, while regarded as dependent on the king, is supposed to be partly independent of his will. His person is considered if we may express it so, as the dynamic center of the universe, from which lines of force radiate all quarters of the heaven, so that any motion of his, the turning of his head, the lifting of his hand, instantaneously affects and may seriously disturb some part of nature. He is the point of support on which hangs the balance of the world, and the slightest irregularity on his part may overthrow the delicate equipoise. The greatest care must, therefore, be taken both by and of him, and his soul life, down to its minutest details, must be so regulated that no act of his, voluntary or involuntary, may disarrange or upset the established order of nature. Of this class of monarchs, the Mikado or Dairi, the spiritual emperor of Japan, is, or rather used to be, a typical example. He is an incarnation of the sun goddess, the deity who rules the universe gods and men included. Once a year all the gods wait upon him and spend a month at his court, during that month, the name of which means without the gods. No one frequents the temples, for they are believed to be deserted. The Mikado receives from his people and assumes in his official proclamations and decrees the title of Manifest or Incarnate Deity, and he claims a general authority over the gods of Japan. For example, in an official decree of the year 646, the emperor is described as the incarnate god who governs the universe. The following description of the Mikado's mode of life was written about 200 years ago. Even to this day, the princes descended of this family, more particularly those who sit on the throne, are looked upon as persons most holy in themselves, and as popes by birth. And, in order to preserve these advantageous notions in the minds of their subjects, they are obliged to take an uncommon care of their sacred persons, and to do such things which, examined according to the customs of other nations, would be thought ridiculous or impertinent. It may not be improper to give a few instances of it. He thinks that it would be very prejudicial to his dignity and holiness to touch the ground with his feet for this reason, When he intends to go anywhere, he must be carried thither on men's shoulders. Much less will they suffer that he should expose his sacred person to the open air, and the sun is not thought worthy to shine on his head. There is such a holiness ascribed to all the parts of his body, that he dares to cut off neither his hair, nor his beard, nor his nails. However, lest he should grow too dirty, they may clean him in the night when he is asleep, because, they say, that which is taken from his body at that time, hath been stolen from him, and that such a theft doth not prejudice his holiness or dignity. In ancient times, he was obliged to sit on the throne for some hours every morning, with the imperial crown on his head, but to sit altogether like a statue, without stirring either hands or feet, head or eyes, nor indeed any part of his body, because, by this means, it was thought that he could preserve peace and tranquillity in his empire. For if, unfortunately, he turned himself one side or the other, or if he looked a good while towards any part of his dominions, it was apprehended that war, famine, fire, or some other great misfortune was near at hand to desolate the country. But it having been afterwards discovered that the imperial crown was the palladium which by its immobility could preserve peace in the empire, it was thought expedient to deliver his imperial person consecrated only to idleness and pleasures, from this burdensome duty, and therefore the crown is at present placed on the throne for some hours every morning. His victuals must be dressed every time in new pots, and served at table in new dishes. Both are very clean and neat, but made only of common clay, that without any considerable expense they may be laid aside or broke after they have served once. They are generally broke, for fear they should come into the hands of laymen, For they believe religiously that if any layman should presume to eat his food out of these sacred dishes, it would swell and inflame his mouth and throat. The like ill effect is dreaded from the diary's sacred habits, for they believe that if a layman should wear them without the emperor's express leave or command, they would occasion swellings and pains in all parts of his body. To the same effect, an earlier account of the Mikado says, It was considered as a shameful degradation for him even to touch the ground with his foot, The sun and moon were not even permitted to shine upon his head. None of the superfluities of the body were ever taken from him, neither his hair, his beard, nor his nails were cut. Whatever he ate was dressed in new vessels. Similar priestly or rather divine kings are found, at a lower level of barbarism, on the west coast of Africa. At Shark Point, near Cape Padron in Lower Guinea, lives the priestly king Kukulu, alone in a wood. He may not touch a woman, nor leave his house. Indeed, he may not even quit his chair, in which he is obliged to sleep sitting, for if he lay down, no wind would arise, and navigation would be stopped. He regulates storms, and in general maintains a wholesome and equable state of the atmosphere. On Mount Agu in Togo, there lives a fetish or spirit called Bagba, who is of great importance for the whole of the surrounding country. The power of giving or withholding rain is ascribed to him, and he is lord of the winds, including the harmattan, the dry, hot wind which blows from the interior. His priest dwells in a house on the highest peak of the mountain, where he keeps the wind bottled up in huge jars. Applications for rain, too, are made to him, and he does a good business in amulets, which consist of the teeth and claws of leopards. Yet though his power is great, and he is indeed the real chief of the land, the rule of the fetish forbids him ever to leave the mountain, and he must spend the whole of his life on its summit. Only once a year may he come down to make purchases in the market, but even then he may not set a foot in the hut of any mortal man, and must return to his place of exile the same day. The business of government in the villages is conducted by subordinate chiefs, who are appointed by him. In the West African kingdom of Congo, there was a supreme pontiff called Chitome, or Chitombe, whom the negroes recorded as a god on earth and all-powerful in heaven. Hence, before they would taste the new crops, they offered him the first fruits, fearing that manifold misfortunes would befall them if they broke this rule. When he left his residence to visit other places within his jurisdiction, all married people had to observe strict continence the whole time he was out, for it was supposed that any act of incontinence would prove fatal to him. And if he were to die a natural death, They thought that the world would perish, and the earth, which he alone sustained by his power and merit, would immediately be annihilated. Amongst the semi-barbarous nations of the New World, at the date of the Spanish conquest, there were found hierarchies or theocracies like those of Japan. In particular, the High Pontiff of the Zapotecs appears to have presented a close parallel to the Mikado. A powerful rival to the king himself, this spiritual lord governed Yopa one of the chief cities of the kingdom, with absolute dominion. It is impossible, we are told, to overrate the reverence in which he was held. He was looked on as a god whom the earth was not worthy to hold, nor the sun to shine upon. He profaned his sanctity if he even touched the ground with his foot. The officers who bore his palanquin on their shoulders were members of the highest families, He hardly deigned to look on anything around him, and all who met him fell with their faces to the earth, fearing that death would overtake them if they even saw his shadow. A rule of continence was regularly imposed on the Zapotic priests, especially upon the high pontiff, but on certain days of each year, which were generally celebrated with feasts and dances, it was customary for the high priests to become drunk, while in this state seeming to belong neither to heaven nor to earth. One of the most beautiful of the virgins consecrated to the service of the gods was brought to him. If child she bore him was a son, he was brought up as a prince of the blood, and the eldest son succeeded his father on the pontifical throne. The supernatural powers attributed to this pontiff are not specified, but probably they resembled those of the Mikado and Chitomi. Wherever, as in Japan and West Africa, It is supposed that the order of nature, and even the existence of the world, is bound up with the life of the king or priest. It is clear that he must be regarded by his subjects as a source both of infinite blessing and of infinite danger. On the one hand, the people have to thank him for the rain and sunshine which foster the fruits of the earth, for the wind which brings ships to their coasts, and even for the solid ground beneath their feet. But what he gives he can refuse, and so close is the dependence of nature on his person, so delicate the balance of the system of forces whereof he is the centre, that the least irregularity on his part may set up a tremor which shall shake the earth to its foundations. And if nature may be disturbed by the slightest involuntary act of the king, it is easy to conceive the convulsion which his death might provoke. The natural death of the Chitome, as we have seen, was thought to entail the destruction of all things. Clearly, therefore, out of regard for their own safety, which might be imperilled by any rash act of the king, and still more by his death, the people will exact of their king or priest a strict conformity to those rules, the observance of which is deemed necessary for his own preservation, and consequently for the preservation of his people and the world. The idea that early kingdoms are despotisms in which the people exist only for the sovereign, is wholly inapplicable to the monarchies we are considering. On the contrary, the sovereign in them exists only for his subjects. His life is only valuable so long as he discharges the duties of his position by ordering the course of nature for his people's benefit. So soon as he fails to do so, the care, the devotion, the religious homage which they had hitherto lavished on him, cease and are changed into hatred and contempt. He is dismissed ignominiously, and may be thankful if he escapes with his life. Worshipped as a god one day, he is killed as a criminal the next. But in this changed behavior of the people, there is nothing capricious or inconsistent. On the contrary, their conduct is entirely of a peace. If their king is their god, he is, or should be, also their preserver. And if he will not preserve them, he must make room for another who will. So long, however, as he answers their expectations, there is no limit to the care which they will take of him, and which they compel him to take of himself. A king of this sort lives hedged in by a ceremonious etiquette, a network of prohibitions and observances, of which the intention is not to contribute to his dignity, much less to his comfort, but to restrain him from conduct which, by disturbing the harmony of nature, might involve himself, his people, and the universe in one common catastrophe. Far from adding to his comfort, these observances, by trammelling his every act, annihilate his freedom and often render the very life which it is their object to preserve, a burden and sorrow to him. Of the supernaturally endowed king of Luango, it is said that the more powerful a king is, the more taboos he is bound to observe. They regulate all his actions, his walking and his standing, his eating and drinking, his sleeping and waking. To these restraints the heir to the throne is subject from infancy, but as he advances in life, the number of abstinences and ceremonies which he must observe increases, until at the moment that he ascends the throne he is lost in the ocean of rites and taboos. In the crater of an extinct volcano, enclosed on all sides by grassy slopes, lie the scattered huts and yam-fields of Riabba, the capital of the native king of Fernando Po. This mysterious being lives in the lowest depths of the crate, surrounded by a harem of forty women, and covered, it is said, with old silver coins. Naked savage as he is, he yet exercises far more influence in the island than the Spanish governor at Santa Isabel. In him the conservative spirit of the boobies, or aboriginal inhabitants of the island, is, as it were, incorporate. He has never seen a white man, and, according to the firm conviction of all the boobies, the sight of a pale face would cause his instant death. He cannot bear to look upon the sea. Indeed, it is said that he may never see it, even in the distance, and that therefore he wears away his life with shackles on his legs in the dim twilight of his hut. Certain it is that he has never set foot on the beach. With the exception of his musket and knife, he uses nothing that comes from the whites. European cloth never touches his person, and he scorns tobacco, rum, and even salt. Among the eevee-speaking peoples of the slave coast, the king is at the same time high priest. In this quality he was, particularly in former times, unapproachable by his subjects. Only by night was he allowed to quit his dwelling in order to bathe, and so forth. None but his representative, the so-called visible king, with three chosen elders, might converse with him, and even they had to sit on an ox-hide with their backs turned to him. He might not see any European, nor any horse, nor might he look upon the sea, for which reason he was not allowed to quit his capital even for a few moments. These rules have been disregarded in recent times. The king of Dahomey himself is subject to the prohibition of beholding the sea, and so are the kings of Loango and Great Ardra in Guinea. The sea is the fetish of the Eios to the northwest of Dahomey, and they and their king are threatened with death by their priests, if ever they dare to look upon it. It is believed that the king of Cajor in Senegal would infallibly die within the year if he were ever to cross a river or an arm of the sea. In Mashonaland, down to recent times, the chiefs would not cross certain rivers, particularly the Rurikvi and the Nyadiri, and the custom was still strictly observed by at least one chief within recent years. On no account will the chief cross the river. If it is absolutely necessary for him to do so, he is blindfolded and carried across with shouting and singing. Should he walk across, he will go blind or die and certainly lose the chieftainship. So among the Mahafalis and Sakalavas in the south of Madagascar, some kings are forbidden to sail on the sea or cross certain rivers. Among the Sakalavas, the chief is regarded as a sacred being, but he is held in a leash by a crowd of restrictions, which regulate his behavior like that of the emperor of China. He can undertake nothing whatever unless the sorcerers have declared the omens favorable. He may not eat warm food, on certain days he may not quit his hut, and so on. Among some of the hill tribes of Assam, both the headman and his wife have to observe many taboos in respect to food. Thus, they may not eat buffalo, pork, dog, fowl, or tomatoes. The headman must be chaste, the husband of one wife, and he must separate himself from her on the eve of a general public observance of taboo. In one group of tribes the headman is forbidden to eat in a strange village, and under no provocation whatever may he utter the word of abuse. Apparently the people imagined that a violation of any of these taboos by a headman would bring down misfortune on the whole village. The ancient kings of Ireland, as well as the kings of the four provinces of Leinster, Munster, Connaught, and Ulster, were subject to certain quaint prohibitions or taboos, on the due observance of which the prosperity of the people of the country, as well as their own, was supposed to depend. Thus, for example, the sun might not rise on the king of Ireland in his bed at Tara, the old capital of Erin. He was forbidden to alight on Wednesday at Mag Breg, to traverse Magh Quillin after sunset, to incite his horses from Trumair, to go in a ship upon the water the Monday after Beltane, Mayday, and to leave the track of his army upon Atmaigny the Tuesday after All Hallows. The king of Leinster might not go round to Atlaighian left-hand-wise on Wednesday, nor sleep between the Dothair, Dodder, and the Dwylimbhin, with his head inclining to one side, nor encamp for nine days on the plains of Kualan, nor travel the roads of Dwyblin on Monday, nor ride a dirty black-heeled horse across Megmenstein. The king of Munster was prohibited from enjoying the feast of Loch Lane from one Monday to another, from banqueting by night in the beginning of harvest before game at Latriaka, from encamping for nine days upon the Sewer, and from holding a border meeting at Gabran, the king of Connaught might not conclude a treaty respecting his ancient palace at Cruachan after making peace on All Harrow's Day, nor go in a speckled garment on a grey speckled steed to the heat of Dalchais, nor repair to an assembly of women at Seagais, nor sit in autumn on the sepulchral mounds of the wife of Main, nor contend in running with the rider of a grey one-eyed horse at Gulta between two posts. The king of Ulster was forbidden to attend the horse-fair at Ratline among the youths of Dal-Areidhe, to listen to the fluttering of the flocks of birds of Linsailach after sunset, to celebrate the feast of the bull of der Migdair, to go into Maghoba in the month of March, and to drink the water of Bo-Namid between the two darknesses. If the kings of Ireland strictly observed these and many other customs, which were enjoined by immemorial usage, It was believed that they would never meet any misfortune or mischance, and would live for ninety years without experiencing the decay of old age, that no epidemic or mortality would occur during their reigns, and that the seasons would be favourable, and the earth yield its fruit in abundance, whereas, if they set the ancient usages at naught, the country would be visited with plague, famine, and bad weather. The kings of Egypt were worshipped as gods and the routine of their daily life was regulated in every detail by precise and unvarying rules. The life of the kings of Egypt, says Diodorus, was not like that of other monarchs who are irresponsible and may do just what they choose. On the contrary, everything was fixed for them by law, not only their official duties, but even the details of their daily life. The hours both of day and night were arranged at which the king had to do, not what he pleased, but what was prescribed for him. For not only were the times appointed at which he should transact public business or sit in judgment, but the very hours for his walking and bathing and sleeping with his wife, and, in short, performing every act of life, were all settled. Custom enjoined a simple diet, the only flesh he might eat was veal and goose, and he might only drink a prescribed quantity of wine. However, there is reason to think that these rules were observed, not by the ancient pharaohs, but by the priestly kings who reigned at Thebes and Ethiopia at the close of the 20th dynasty. On the taboos imposed on priests, we may see a striking example in the rules of life prescribed before the flamendialis at Rome, who has been interpreted as a living image of Jupiter, or a human embodiment of the sky spirit. They were such as the following. Flamandialis might not ride or even touch a horse, nor see an army under arms, nor wear a ring which was not broken, nor have a knot on any part of his garment. No fire except the sacred fire might be taken out of his house. He might not touch wheaten flour or leavened bread. He might not touch or even name a goat, a dog, raw meat, beans, and ivy. He might not walk under a vine. The feet of his bed had to be daubed with mud. His hair could be cut only by a free man and with a bronze knife, and his hair and nails, when cut, had to be buried under a lucky tree. He might not touch a dead body, nor enter a place where one was burned. He might not see work being done on holy days. He might not be uncovered in the open air. If a man in bonds were taken into his house, the captive had to be unbound, and the cords had to be drawn up through a hole in the roof, and so let down into the street. His wife, the Flaminica, had to observe nearly the same rules, and others of her own besides. She might not descend more than three steps of the kind of staircase called Greek. At a certain festival she might not comb her hair. The leather of her shoes might not be made of a beast that had died a natural death but only from one that had been slain or sacrificed. If she heard thunder, she was tabooed till she had offered an expiatory sacrifice. Among the Grebo people of Sierra Leone, there is a pontiff who bears the title of Bodia, and has been compared, on somewhat slender grounds, to the high priest of the Jews. He is appointed in accordance with the behest of an oracle. At an elaborate ceremony of installation, he is anointed, a ring is on his ankle as a badge of office, and the doorposts of his house are sprinkled with the blood of a sacrificed goat. He has charge of public talismans and idols, which he feeds with rice and oil every new moon, and he sacrifices on behalf of the town to the dead and to demons. Nominally his power is very great, but in practice it is very limited, for he dare not defy public opinion, and he is held responsible, even with his life for any adversity that befalls the country. It is expected of him that he should cause the earth to bring forth abundantly, the people to be healthy, war to be driven far away, and witchcraft to be kept in abeyance. His life is trammelled by the observance of certain restrictions or taboos. Thus he may not sleep in any house but his own official residence, which is called the Anointed House, with reference to the ceremony of anointing him at the inauguration. He may not drink water on the highway. He may not eat while a corpse is in the town, and he may not mourn for the dead. If he dies while in office, he must be buried at dead of night. Few may hear of his burial, and none may mourn for him when his death is made public. Should he have fallen a victim to the poison ordeal by drinking a decoction of sassy wood, as it is called, he must be buried under a running stream of water. Among the Todas of southern India, the holy milkman, who acts as priest of the sacred deity, is subject to a variety of irksome and burdensome restrictions during the whole time of his incumbency, which may last many years. Thus he must live at the sacred deity and may never visit his home or any ordinary village. He must be celibate. If he is married, he must leave his wife. On no account may any ordinary person touch the holy milkman or the holy dairy. Such a touch would so defile his holiness that he would forfeit his office. It is only on two days a week, namely Mondays and Thursdays, that a mere layman may even approach the milkman. On other days, if he has any business with him, he must stand at the distance, some say a quarter of a mile, and shout his message across the intervening space. Further, the holy milkman never cuts his hair or pierce his nails so long as he holds office. He never crosses a river by a bridge, but wades through a ford, and only certain fords. If a death occurs in his clan, he may not attend any of the funeral ceremonies, unless he first resigns his office and descends from the exalted rank of milkman to that of a mere common mortal. Indeed, it appears that in old days he had to resign the seals, or rather the pails, of office whenever any member of his clan departed this life. However, these heavy restraints are laid in their entirety only on milkmen of the very highest class. 2. Divorce of the spiritual from the temporal power The burdensome observances attached to the royal or priestly office produced their natural effect. Either men refused to accept the office, which hence tended to fall into abeyance, or, accepting it, They sank under its weight into spiritless creatures, cloistered recluses, from whose nerveless fingers the reins of government slipped into the firmer grasp of men who were often content to wield the reality of sovereignty without its name. In some countries, this rift in the supreme power deepened into a total and permanent separation of the spiritual and temporal powers. The old royal house retaining their purely religious functions, while the civil government passed into the hands of a younger and more vigorous race. To take examples, in a previous part of this work we saw that in Cambodia it is often necessary to force the kingship of fire and water upon the reluctant successors, and that in Savage Island the monarchy actually came to an end because at last no one could be induced to accept the dangerous distinction. In some parts of West Africa, when the king dies, A family council is secretly held to determine his successor. He on whom the choice falls is suddenly seized, bound, and thrown into the fetish house, where he is kept in durance till he consents to accept the crown. Sometimes the heir finds means of evading the honour which it is sought to thrust upon him. A ferocious chief has been known to go about constantly armed, resolute to resist by force any attempt to set him on the throne the savage Timmes of Sierra Leone, who elect their king, reserve to themselves the right of beating him on the eve of his coronation, and they avail themselves of this constitutional privilege with such hearty goodwill that sometimes the unhappy monarch does not long survive his elevation to the throne. Hence, when the leading chiefs have a spite at a man and wish to rid themselves of him, they elect him king. Formerly, before a man was proclaimed king of Sierra Leone, It used to be the custom to load him with chains and thrash him, then the fetters were knocked off, the kingly robe was placed on him, and he received in his hands the symbol of royal dignity, which was nothing but the axe of the executioner. It is not therefore surprising to read that in Sierra Leone, where such customs have prevailed, except among the Mandingues and Susis, few kings are natives of the countries they govern. So different are their ideas from ours? that very few are solicitous of the honour, and competition is very seldom heard of. The Mikados of Japan seem early to have resorted to the expedient of transferring the honours and burdens of supreme power to their infant children, and the rise of the tycoons, long the temporal sovereigns of the country, is traced to the abdication of a certain Mikado in favour of his three-year-old son. The sovereignty having been wrested by an usurper from the infant prince, The cause of the Mikado was championed by Yoritomo, a man of spirit and conduct, who overthrew the usurper and restored the Mikado the shadow, while he retained for himself the substance of power. He bequeathed to his descendants the dignity he had won, and thus became the founder of the line of tycoons, or shoguns. Down the latter half of the sixteenth century, the tycoons were active and efficient rulers, but the same fate overtook them which had befallen the Mikados enmeshed in the same inextricable web of custom and law, they degenerated into mere puppets, hardly stirring from their palaces, and occupied in a perpetual round of empty ceremonies, while the real business of government was managed by the Council of State. In Tonquin the monarchy ran a similar course, living like his predecessors in effeminacy and sloth, the king was driven from the throne by an ambitious adventurer named Mak, who from a fisherman had risen to be great mandarin. But the king's brother Tring put down the usurper and restored the king, retaining, however, for himself and his descendants the dignity of general of all the forces. Thenceforward the kings, though invested with the title and pomp of sovereignty, ceased to govern. While they lived secluded in their palaces, all real political power was wielded by the hereditary generals. In Mangaya, a Polynesian island, religious and civil authority were lodged in separate hands, spiritual functions being discharged by a line of hereditary kings, while the temporal government was entrusted from time to time to a victorious war chief, whose investiture, however, had to be completed by the king. Similarly in Tonga, besides the civil king whose right to the throne was partly hereditary and partly derived from his warlike reputation and the number of his fighting men, There was a great divine chief, who ranked above the king and the other chiefs in virtue of his supposed descent from one of the chief gods. Once a year the first fruits of the ground were offered to him at a solemn ceremony, and it was believed that if these offerings were not made, the vengeance of the gods would fall in a signal manner on the people. Peculiar forms of speech, such as were applied to no one else, were used in speaking of him, and everything that he chanced to touch became sacred or tabooed. When he and the king met, the monarch had to sit down on the ground in token of respect until his holiness had passed by. Yet though he enjoyed the highest veneration by reason of his divine origin, this sacred personage possessed no political authority, and if he ventured to meddle with affairs of state, it was at the risk of receiving a rebuff from the king, to whom the real power belonged, and who finally succeeded in ridding himself of his spiritual rival. In some parts of Western Africa two kings reign side by side, a fetish or religious king and a civil king, but the fetish king is really supreme. He controls the weather and so forth, and he can put a stop to everything. When he lays his red staff on the ground, no one may pass that way. This division of power between a sacred and a secular ruler is to be met with wherever the true negro culture has been left unmolested, but where the negro form of society has been disturbed in Dahomey and Ashanti. There is a tendency to consolidate the two powers in a single king. In some parts of the East Indian island of Timor, we meet with a partition of power, like that which is represented by the civil king and the fetish king of Western Africa. Some of the Timorese tribes recognize two rajas, the ordinary or civil raja, who governs the people, and the fetish or taboo raja, who is charged with the control of everything that concerns the earth and its products. This latter ruler has the right of declaring anything taboo, his permission must be obtained before new land may be brought under cultivation, and he must perform certain necessary ceremonies when the work is being carried out. If drought or blight threatens the crops, his help is invoked to save them. Though he ranks below the civil raja, he exercises a momentous influence on the course of events, for his secular college is bound to consult him in all important matters. In some of the neighboring islands, such as Roti and Eastern Flores, a spiritual ruler of the same sort is recognized under various native names, which all mean "lord of the ground." Similarly, in the Mekeo district of British New Guinea, there is a double chieftainship. The people are divided into two groups according to families, and each of the groups has its chief. One of the two is the war chief; the other is the taboo chief. The office of the latter is hereditary. His duty is to impose a taboo on any of the crops, such as the coconuts and the nuts, whenever he thinks it is desirable to prohibit their use. In his office, we may perhaps detect the beginning of a priestly dynasty, but as yet, his functions appear to be more magical than religious, being concerned with the control of the harvests, rather than with the propitiation of higher powers. End of chapter 17 Recording by Monsbro. Ruuslaks, Finland